0: The Gospel in the World, John chapter 12, the Gospel in the World. We have a lot to cover today because even though Stephen read from 20 to 36, we're actually going to go to the conclusion of this chapter. So four main points which we will go through relatively quickly. So we're going to forego any kind of an introduction this morning except to simply say this, that we left off with the triumphal entry which is found in verses 12 to 19, the triumphal entry, that time which is Jesus' humble but prophetic fulfillment of his being Messiah and Savior of the world. We went over that, and if you'd like to um, go over those notes, they're available to you. That triumphal entry was to the joy of some, but the irritation of others. At the conclusion of this section, we see in verse 19 the Pharisees say, Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now we're continuing through chapter 12 to the end with four points, as I said. The first of which is this the hour. This is verses 20 through 26. The first thing that we're going to look at is the hour. This is undoubtedly one of those passages that strikes me as so deep with devotion and honor. Looking at verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see whom? Jesus. Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Listen, don't expect to come to this church or any God-honoring, Bible-believing church to get anything else. While there's a large faction of people attending churches today in this age who are saying, sir, we wish to see smoke. And sir, we wish to hear rock. And, sir, we wish to see a wonderfully planned program. Yet here in my church, in our church, the church that I pastor, we will come together and we will say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Because that's what it's all about. Of course, there's nothing wrong with some of these things per se. But when these things are the things... When good things become God things, they become bad things. And that's something we have to be aware of. We don't know much more about these Greeks that come and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We don't even know all that is meant by that phrase, except that we can say that they cared more about Christ than Caiaphas did. In chapter 11... They had more faith in Jesus, a better faith in Jesus, than the Pharisees did. They wanted to see Jesus. Philip tells Andrew, and they tell Jesus. And Jesus, as a response to hearing that, drops this line, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Of course, he's referring to himself here as the Son of Man. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. First of all, I'd like you to note Jesus' reference to the hour. This is in verse 23 in your text. If you want and you're making notes in your Bible, circle that. That's important. It's going to re- occur again in the second section that we're going to study today, the hour. First of all, I'd like you to see that. Let's consider this idea of the hour for a moment because it's important. One of the themes that's found, sown throughout the fabric of the Bible is the theme of time. And in particular, how God is in control of it. The events that have happened throughout history have happened when God, in his control over all things, has deemed it time for them to happen as a demonstration of his sovereignty and control. Case in point. Some scriptures are going to come up here on the outline. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful when? In its time. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, God says. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare. Get this. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come. Did you get that? Not early, not late. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. Throughout the Bible, there is this theme of time. And when Jesus came, performed his ministry, and preached his sermons as his death and crucifixion approached, he referred to that culmination as his hour of glorification. That moment that was planned beforehand in eternity past for him to bring glory to his father by his death for sinners like you and me. Jesus prophesies and says seeds don't produce fruit unless they fall into the ground and are buried. Then they produce fruit. An obvious reference here to his impending death and burial. He does this often in Matthew 2. In verses that say this, for example, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There are three explicit prophecies given by Jesus in Matthew's gospel of that event. Not to mention the illusions, but he gives three specific prophecies of that event before they take place because God had ordained the time. This message is so rooted in the gospel that Jesus follows up by saying, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says things like this constantly throughout the gospel when he juxtaposes the next life from this one and this one from that one. For example, in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These paradoxes are everywhere in Jesus' teaching. He continues and he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, Jesus was obedient to his Father to the point that he was aware of his impending hour. And we too must be obedient to the Lord, to the glory of the Father. Our Savior was obedient to the Father and we must be obedient to the Father by way of of being obedient to the Son. If we love this life at the expense of eternity, it will be to our everlasting doom. What this life offers us pales in comparison to what the Lord offers us. And as often as we trade our faithfulness and commitment to Christ for the riches, so called, of this world, that's how often we compromise. The Christian doctrines that Christ has called us to, namely, to not put anything or anybody above him or before him. He knew his hour. And secondly, we see a declaration. This is verses 26 to 36. We see a declaration. And by that, I'm referring to the words that God himself speaks into our reality in this event. Look at it again. It's in uh, beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this purpose i have come to this hour see here we are again with this theme of this hour he knows what is going to happen jesus didn't trip and fall on the cross it was all part of god's ordained plan even the day even the time Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. The crowd that stood there heard it. They said it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke unto him. And Jesus said, that voice has come for whose sake? Your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, will the ruler of the world be cast out? And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, an obvious reference to his being mounted to the cross and lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die, John says. So the crowd answered him We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who's the Son of Man? They're not listening. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus says an audible prayer, and then God himself speaks, and then Jesus tells us, and the hearers, two things that we should walk away with. First, he tells us an indicative. And secondly, he gives us an imperative. An indicative, or the indicative mood, is used to observe a reality, to tell a truth, to give you a teaching. Jesus gives us a teaching here. Jesus teaches us that the voice of God was audible, not so that Jesus could be encouraged but so that the people standing by could witness the Father's blessing and affirmation on the Son. Now I know that you and I like to ask God for signs. Amen? Anybody ever say, God, if this is your will, put a million dollars in my bank account. (laughs) Right? Lord, if it's your will to date this unbeliever, they will go with me to church on Sunday. Lord, if it's your will that I buy this house, doesn't matter what's in my account, <laughs> you'll make it happen. No, I kid, because I know that we've been, all of us, in situations where we've kind of played that game with God, and maybe even ourselves. Sometimes we feel guilty because we request things from God, a knowledge, a sort of blessing. We're aware of Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right, And so we hear that verse, and we think that we are wrong or bad or out of alignment with God's will to say, Lord, if this is your will for me, let me know. But this has to be placed in the proper context. Yes, Deuteronomy 6, 16 says you shall not test the Lord your God. But at the same time, Psalm 86, 17 says, Lord, show me a sign of your favor. You see, it's not wrong to pray to God for the direction of your life in any given situation while you trust him by faith. It's not wrong. It's wrong to test God while never being pleased with with the answer that you get. Well, that's different. To live your life outside of his will and continually ask for a sign, that's putting God to the test. But while you're living in his will, seeking his glory, and aiming at doing all that pleases him, it's not wrong to say, God, confirm what I'm doing here. Confirm for me that this is the right person. Confirm for me that this is the direction that you want me to go. That's not testing. That's faith. Personally, I'm grateful that God isn't quiet. Amen? What I mean by that is I'm grateful for the numerous times in my own life personally when I know God has spoken loudly and clearly to me about something. One example would be this church. I know that the events that were orchestrated in order for me to come to this church as pastor was orchestrated by God. I know that nothing could have happened by anyone else's hand except God's hand in order for those events to transpire in the timeline that they did, in the way that they did, in order for us to come together. I don't know how it would have happened any other way. And he spoke to me throughout the entire situation. It's not wrong to want to see God's hand and work in your life and your circumstances. But when God speaks, say amen if you're listening. You've got to obey. Too many Christians that I know of ask God for a sign of permission. That's what they really want. I'm going to do what I want when I want. Tell me that you're going to let me do this. But that's not what the voice of God is for. It's not wrong to seek a sign from the Lord to confirm the direction of your life or the things that are happening or whatever it is that might be presenting itself. But first of all, we receive his word, his voice from the Bible. Second of all, we receive his word from the confirmation of those who are around us. And third of all, we receive confirmation of God's word to us, his speaking to us by the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who comforts us or convicts us depending on the circumstance. I speak to God, and God speaks to me on a regular basis. But he has never spoken to me audibly like this. But that doesn't mean, please hear me, that God doesn't speak. God speaks a lot. We're just not really good at listening. In this particular circumstance, Jesus is teaching us that when God spoke, he didn't speak because Jesus needed the encouragement. He spoke so that everyone could hear his affirmation of his Son. That's the indicative. The second thing is the imperative. That's what we get after that. Jesus says, just a little further, the imperative, and an imperative is a command. So Jesus says, I want you to learn this first and foremost. God spoke to encourage you, to help you know. But second of all, he's giving us a command, Jesus is, and that is this. Walk in the light and walk while you have the light, which suggests the light is not always going to be available. There will be a time when the light is no longer available to us. He's not asking us, he's he's telling us, excuse me, that we must take for granted, not take for granted, excuse me, we must not take for granted the life and the grace and the mercy that God has given to us. If we do, it can be to our doom. Thirdly, we see unbelief. That leads without any seam from that idea to this next idea. Looking at verse Thirty-six. When Jesus had said these things, it says, He departed and He hid Himself from them. Walk in the light while you have the light. And then Jesus disappears. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. So that the word might be spoken that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what He heard from us, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Because again, Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it. So they had faith in Jesus, but it was a weak faith. John says, as he often does, the reason this was was because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Thirdly, we see the unbelief. We've seen the hour, the declaration, and now the unbelief. And when we see the unbelief, we're talking about the unbelief of the people and the relationship or the connection that they have to God's prophetic word and Jesus as his Messiah and Savior, in particular the prophet Isaiah. The unbelief begins in the previous section, runs into this one that we're looking at now. We've been in a crisis of belief for centuries. We have. Humankind has been trying to figure out what they can believe in ever since they've done away with God. The exclusion of God and theology has left such a dark hole in our hearts and minds that our societies are falling apart while we're justifying the unthinkable to each other in view of the fact that we no longer have a creator to whom we must give an account. So everything's okay now because we've killed God. I'm reminded of what G.K. Chesterton once said He said, when men choose not to believe in God They do not thereafter believe in nothing They then become capable of believing in anything I mean, just turn on the Discovery Channel You've got the Loch Ness Monster The Abominable Snowman UFOs Chewbacca What's that thing called? Whatever. No, no, not the chupa, chupacabra I'm talking about the big beast Huh? The what? Skunk Whatever Bigfoot I think this is what's happening I think this is what G.K. Chesterton is saying Once you do away with God It's not that you don't believe in anything That's what we think we think that when somebody is an atheist, they don't believe in anything. But take a survey of the world. They believe everything. They just don't believe God. I think, that's what, I think that's what he's saying, and I think that's what we're getting. Looking further, what Jesus says, he quotes Isaiah, saying that Isaiah's prophecies were fulfilled, not only because those who didn't believe didn't believe, but also because God ordained it to be so. This is a judicial hardening. Verse 40 says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Church, this is not talking about Satan. This is talking about God. God has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their hearts. lest they would see and understand and turn, and I would forgive them. That's God doing that. We don't need to force a square peg into a round hole here. God has ordained everything that comes to pass. And we are responsible moral agents who are accountable to our Creator. Both truths are true at the same time. God's sovereignty is a fact unavoidably taught in the Bible. Just like our individual responsibility to respond to his gospel is also taught in the Bible. Ultimately, we may lean a little more one way or a little more another way. But understand this much. Jonah 2.9 says, Salvation is from the Lord. And our sin will land us in hell. Those two things are not arguable. Before moving to our last point, let me say this. If we are in Christ, then we are in Christ, Period. But for those who haven't submitted to Christ as Lord and as Savior, each moment is another moment of hardening, and God can and will judge someone and their unbelief. Bruce Milne writes this, How this is so certainly escapes us. That it is so, John does not hesitate to affirm, and neither we. We must not, excuse me, we must not have a clear, excuse me, we might not have a clear understanding of all the doctrines that the Bible presents to us. But our inability to fully comprehend and understand a doctrine that the Bible presents to us does not dictate its truthfulness. Some of these doctrines are hard for us to swallow. But our preference should play no part in the process of determining what we believe. If the word of God says it, we can't say, "Oh, but oh, oh, but oh, but maybe, oh, but no." It says it. it says it. It says it. You got to deal with it. And in this particular case, as difficult as the words might be to receive, we have to be aware of. The reality that when God decides someone will not get any more opportunities and he hardens them, he hardens them. This is, church, all the more reason for us to take every opportunity we have to share the gospel of Jesus with the world. And that's our last point. Verse 44 says, Jesus cried out and said whoever believes in me believes in not in me but in he who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness if anyone hears my my words and does not keep them I do not judge him for I did not come into the world to judge the world but to save the world the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not, not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. We're going to get into that. That is such an important point. But we're going to get into that a little more deeply when we get to John chapter 17. But for this morning's message, and I'm sorry that I can't read today. Wrapping up this chapter, we see in the very fashion that John has demonstrated thus far in his gospel a reminder that the gospel isn't only for the Jews but for the what the world. Verse forty-four says, "And Jesus cried out." It says, "J.B. Phillips puts it like this: Jesus cried aloud." The Good News Bible says, Jesus said in a loud voice. It's a Greek word that means to cry out or to exclaim. And whether this is practical, as in Jesus raised his voice so that many of the people who were around could hear him, or whether it was didactic, as in Jesus raised his voice because of the importance of what he was saying, really isn't the point. What he's saying is important. The way The relationship of the Son and the Father is linked. And vice versa, cannot be missed. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. It's a principle of Christian doctrine that the Father and Son are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Jesus says, whoever and anyone, four times in four verses. Did you get that? Four times in four verses, Jesus says, whoever, three times, and anyone once. That's a significant point that we can't miss. What Jesus is trying to convey is that all humankind can be saved in Christ. We've already seen this through John's gospel. In chapter 4, Jesus is the salvation for the despised outsiders, the Samaritans. In John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd who brings in sheep from other places so that there's one flock and one shepherd. In chapter 12 earlier, we saw that there were Greeks that sought out Jesus and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Jesus is, as already been taught by him and seen because it's been demonstrated, Jesus is the Savior of the world. But listen, this is important to realize. When the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the world, it isn't suggesting that the world is saved. This belief is called universalism, and it's been repopularized. In recent times, in 2003, there was a New York Times bestseller called If Grace is True, Why God Will Save Every Person. This book argues that everyone ends up saved eventually. This is what's called universalism. The two authors, one of which is a Quaker and the other one is an American Baptist, not a Southern Baptist, but I don't know if that makes a difference to the population, Argue that everyone will be saved. But this isn't the gospel. And not only is this not the gospel, it's contrary to so much more. Even Jesus here says that the one who rejects him has a judge he will face. Is that me? That's spooky. What is the judgment that Jesus will face? He says, that person who rejects me will face my word. And what's the word that Jesus has spoken? Is Jesus the savior of the world? Yes, anyone who repents and places their faith in Christ, wherever they are in the world, will be saved. That's the word. This is what is so complicated when it comes to theological perspectives as to Jesus' death And those who receive it. When Jesus died, church, his death is not only the very thing by which people get saved, Jesus' death is also the very thing by which God judges those who won't be saved. The provision is made, and yet you don't believe, and therefore you are judged. That's what Jesus is saying. The provision has been made. Anyone who believes in me has not only me, but also the Father, and will be saved. Whoever, whoever, which means whoever does not, stands under condemnation by the same provision. You see, the death of Christ doesn't only save those who are being saved. It condemns those who are being condemned. I love what J.C. Ryle once wrote. He said, we can never trust Jesus too much follow Jesus too closely or commune with Jesus too unreservedly. He has the power to save and he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. We see so much in this chapter. So much because we see strangers coming during the feast to talk to Jesus. We see people Arguing as to whether or not the voice was thunder or an angel or the father. We see ultimately unbelief. And then we are sort of climactically reminded that it doesn't really matter who you are. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Now I know, I think, that that is a message that seems to get pounded often here. You're right, because that is the mode of the gospel of John. These signs were done so that seeing them, you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing, you might be saved. That's John's word, not mine. We're going to get to that ultimately when John talks about why he wrote the gospel in the first place. Now, I know we, go through, we went through a lot this morning, but ultimately, don't walk away without this idea. Those who don't believe will be condemned. And those who do believe will be saved. There is no neutral ground in the gospel. There is no middle territory in the gospel. We love to do that. We love to create gray. We love to create in our beliefs, in our convictions, in our theology, this gray area where the prickly aspects of convictions don't ever present themselves. But just hear me for a moment. It's never that way in the Bible. We have to come to terms with the fact that those who believe in Jesus will be saved, and those who don't will not. And if we believe anything other than that in regards to salvation, what we believe is not biblical doctrine. Now, that's hard for us. To swallow, isn't it? Some of us have close family members and friends that we love and we share the gospel with and they have rejected the gospel. All we can continue to do is to pray to the God who changes hearts. The ability of someone's faith does not rely upon our ability to present Jesus as Savior. God can use our stumblings and our mumblings and our mistakes to turn somebody's heart to Jesus. You don't have to be a talented evangelist. You just need to be a faithful and obedient Christian. Somebody said, why do you believe what you believe? I believe that Jesus died for sinners like me. And if I believe in him, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved, and you'll be forgiven, and you will live in eternity with God. Simple, done. They might say, well, then what about the dinosaurs? I'll give you my pastor's email address. I don't know about dinosaurs. They might say, what about this other thing? What about the resurrection? We can answer questions along the way. That's what discipleship is all about. None of us in this room have every single thing about Christianity figured out. But we must have one thing figured out. Whoever believes in Jesus will be saved.